We are going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 this morning. Mark 1, 9 through 13. And it's on page 836 in your pew Bibles, if, if you're following along there. Mark 1, 9 through 13. Marketers and politicians go to great lengths to make sure that you and I watch their ads. Uh, And when they succeed, they go to even greater lengths to make sure that we identify with the people in those ads. Uh, Is my race or gender or my kind of person in the ad, using the product or endorsing the candidate? What is your identity and who do you identify with? In other words, who are you at the core of your being? And who would you say represents you? That's what we're going to be seeing as the main question being asked and answered in this morning's text. So Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Our three main hooks to to look at this text this morning are these. Number one, the baptism. Number two, the coronation. And number three, the temptation. So number one, the baptism. Look with me at verse nine. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, Right away, we should all be asking the question, why is Jesus getting baptized? Uh, Remember what we learned last week in John's baptism. Uh, Remember that, that it was a baptism of what? Repentance. So it was a rite that symbolized that someone was a sinner. Uh, In verse 5, we learned that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So these waters were full of sinners, metaphorically polluted with sin. And yet... Jesus allows that water to engulf his perfect being. Why was Jesus getting baptized? He's most definitely not a sinner, and he most definitely doesn't need to repent. John the Baptist knows this. John chapter 1, verse 29 through 30, gives us kind of a snapshot of this moment. It says, the next day he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Uh, In fact, 
Uh, Other gospel accounts, we see that John argued with Jesus at this point. Points him out. He says, this is the Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world. Jesus asked to be baptized and John starts arguing with him. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. In other words, John saying, Jesus, this doesn't seem right. You're sinless. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. To which Jesus responds, John, I don't need a theological lecture right now. Trust me, this is right. Now, here's the question. Why did Mark leave all of that out of his gospel account? Is it because he's lazy and just didn't want to include all of that information? Or is it something else? Remember, each gospel writer is telling us the same story, but intentionally stressing different aspects. Mark intentionally leaves out John's discussion, or John arguing with Jesus about this. Why? Well, I believe it's because he wants us to understand this. Jesus is identifying with sinners. Jesus is identifying with sinners. Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance, but Mark knows that this baptism is at the heart of Jesus' ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is stepping into these sinful waters to identify with sinners like you and me. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus would later say, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So here in Mark 1, he's baptized with water, standing where sinners should stand. And then at the end of his ministry, he's going to be baptized with blood on the cross, receiving what sinners deserve. Jesus is identifying with sinners. He's our mediator and our priest. He's also fulfilling all righteousness. My guess is that if you ask most of the kids down in the children's wings right, right now, if you ask them the question, What did Jesus do for you? Most of them would answer, he died on the cross for my sin. And they'd be half right. He did die for sins. But if that's all that Jesus came to do, we'd be merely back at square one. Our bank account might not be negative anymore, but we'd be back at zero. He'd have paid our debt, but we'd have no positive righteousness. So Jesus obeyed the Father's will in every single way. Jesus, as our Redeemer, not only died in our place, he lived in our place as well. His baptism 
symbolize that. When you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, your sin is taken away because your sin was paid for on the cross. But your account, even better than that, is credited with Jesus's righteousness. Jesus, as the second Adam, as we learned last week, identified with sinners. And everywhere the first Adam failed, Christ obeyed. He fulfilled all righteousness. Point two, the coronation. Before we we look at the next verses, I want to travel back in time a bit. Back into the Old Testament. Since Genesis chapter 3, where humanity was expelled from the garden... They'd always been looking for the one who would rescue them someday. Who would it be? What would the sign be of this rescuer's coming? How would they know the Messiah when he showed up? Well, Isaiah 11 verse 2 tells us that when the Messiah comes, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Later, in Isaiah 64 verse 1, In praying for the Messiah to come, Isaiah says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So, spirit resting upon him, heaven rending. Got that? Now, look back with me in our our text in Mark 1. Mark 1 in verse 9 and 10. So, Jesus comes out to be baptized by John Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You think Mark's trying to tell us something here? This Jesus, who's identifying with sinners, is the long-awaited Messiah. The one that Isaiah told about in all of the Old Testament prophets. By the way, this language of the heavens being torn open, it's significant. Mark uses this word schizo, or torn. God's doing something significant here. The only other place that Mark uses this word is at the end of his gospel. Mark chapter 15 at Jesus' crucifixion. Mark 15, 37 through 39. So Jesus is, is on the cross, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, uh, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The sacrificial system was no longer necessary because God had come and made full atonement for sin. Same word that's used here as baptism. This baptism is significant. God is miraculously intervening in history. Then, Mark tells us that the Spirit descended on him like a dove. More correctly, the preposition here is into. The Spirit descended into him. This is a Trinitarian moment. It's amazing. God the Father 
has sent his son into the world and into the water. And now, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is descending into the Son. Now, here's the question. Is this moment where Jesus just eventually got his deity? Is Mark saying that that Jesus was only human at birth and was made divine at his baptism because the Holy Spirit had finally come on him? No. Jesus was divine by nature, from eternity past, and he will be into eternity future. So the question, why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit here? What's happening here is actually twofold. Number one, Jesus' human nature is being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus' miracles weren't done in his divine nature. They were done in his human nature but empowered by the Holy Spirit, given to him at his baptism. He's being commissioned for ministry here by the Holy Spirit coming into him. And side note, do you guys know that this isn't unique to Jesus? While every Christian receives the Holy Spirit the moment they repent and believe, our baptism is a commissioning for ministry. We're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You get baptized because you're identifying with Jesus. And every follower of Jesus is a minister, according to Ephesians 4. In other words, if you've been baptized, you're commissioned for ministry and empowered with the Holy Spirit. Second, Mark tells us that the Spirit descended on him like a dove. What's up with that? Well, again, I want to take us back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. (coughs) Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the, the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So uh, this image of the Spirit of God hovering like a bird recalls to our mind creation. Now, where else do we see a dove in the book of Genesis? Noah's Ark, right? Because of sin, God floods the earth, but he saves Noah and his family. Then, when God's judgment came to an end, What is it that Noah sends out? Dove. It it finds a place to rest, symbolizing the beginning of God's new creation. Mark's pointing us to the fact that God the Father is highlighting his Son with the Spirit as the place where he's going to begin again. New creation. But wait, there's more. If these clues are, are visual... God also breaks through verbally. Understand the magnitude of this. From the end of the Old Testament with the prophet Malachi that we talked about last week, from there, Malachi, to the beginning of the New Testament, there's a little over 400 years. For 400 years, God hasn't spoken to the prophets. Silence. 400 plus years. 
Then the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends. Verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is our priest who enters the water as our mediator. But he's also our prophet who hears from God and speaks for God. And what is it that God says to him? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is is absolutely mind-blowing for a number of reasons. First, This language that that God is speaking from the heavens to his son, it's the language of Psalm chapter 2 that that we read earlier. Psalm 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Psalm chapter 2, 1 through 7. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I love this, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you see that? Psalm 2. There's the the kings, lowercase k, they're plotting against God, and he laughs at them. Then then he says, I've set my king, capital K, on the true throne. Who is this king? Verse 7, God's son. He says, you are my son. This is enthronement language of the true king being installed. Same language that God uses here at the baptism of Jesus. You are my beloved son. So he's our priest going into the waters. He's our prophet who hears from God. And he's our king, installed as the king of Psalm 2. But where else do we see this language in scripture of a beloved son? Abraham and Isaac, right? Genesis 21 and 22. God gives Abraham and Sarah this miraculous child. He then asks Abraham to do the unthinkable and sacrifice Isaac. Abraham obeys, and then God provides a substitute lamb to die instead. The love that Abraham has, I just encourage you guys to go read that text, Genesis 21 and 22. The love that Abraham has for his son Isaac in that text is almost palpable. You can feel it. That's what we're meant to see here at Jesus' baptism. God the Father loves Jesus, his son, the beloved son, the enthroned king. And look at what God says next. With you, I am well pleased. With you, I am well pleased. Who who doesn't long to hear those words from a loving father? God the Father is well pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. Are you ready for this? Here's the astonishing truth about that. 
for those who are, are in Christ, those words are spoken to you. God looks at you. He, he sees his son's righteousness upon you. And he says, I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, this is great news. Not just for the end of time, but for your everyday life. Because of Jesus, God is pleased with you as his child. Rest in that. Take comfort in that. Experience the joy of that truth. Who is Jesus? He's our prophet. He's our priest. And he's our king. He's the beloved son of God with whom he is well pleased. Point three, the temptation. So Jesus' baptism, because of everything we've just said, was a miraculous, momentous moment. He's just been identified as the Son of God, the Messiah, and the true eternal King. So what happens next is almost shocking. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Immediately following Jesus' baptism, Jesus isn't taken to preach or to heal. He's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. You see how quickly temptation can come on the heels of success? No sooner has Jesus been declared to be the Son of God than his identity is being shot at by Satan. While this certainly isn't the main point of the text, I want us to know that this is typically the norm for Christians. All of you who are commissioned as ministers, which we said earlier is everyone who's a follower of Jesus, all of you will experience successes followed by temptation. Know for certain that it's coming. There's typically not a buffer where Satan just lets up for a while and lets you enjoy your identity in Christ. As followers of Christ, we must always be on guard and clinging to our sure identity as children of God. Now, to be sure, we can look at a passage like this, look at a text in the parallel passage in the other Gospels, and we can learn how to personally overcome temptation with the word of God. That's good and right. But that's not the main point here in the text. As with Jesus' baptism, the main point here is representation. But to truly understand what's going on, we've got to do some work. And as you might suspect, we've got to go back again to the Old Testament. This word, wilderness, eremos, it means desert. Keep that in mind. When I hear the word wilderness, I can kind of think, oh, outdoors. Somewhere you can go camping or even like a rainforest or something. But that's not the picture here. Wilderness means desert or wasteland. So let's go back and start again in the garden. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. Everything they could ever need is all around them. Luscious vegetation, water, God himself walking with them in the cool of the day. Enter Satan. He tempts them. 
they fall and they sin against God. They're thrown out of the garden into the wilderness. Later in the story of redemption, we see the people of Israel. God rescues them out of bondage, out of Egypt, miraculously brings them through the water and immediately into the desert, the wilderness. Sounding familiar? Israel's in the desert for 40 years. Like Adam, they fail miserably. They don't trust God. Look with me at Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and then skip to 26 through 28. So Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, What you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Depressing, right? The wilderness was a graveyard for the Israelites. They, like Adam, were tempted and failed. Is it any surprise to us that Jesus, the second Adam, enters into the wilderness to be tempted? Jesus didn't enter the garden. He entered the wilderness so that he could reverse what Adam did by doing what Adam didn't. This is where redemption must be won. If you're going to release prisoners, you don't go to the Marriott. You go to the prison. Jesus entered the wilderness as our representative. Back to our text, Mark 1, verses 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus, in the wilderness for 40 days. Sound familiar? Just like the Israelites there for 40 years. He's being tempted by Satan. Now understand this. We use language like this all the time, right? I was being tempted by Satan to do this or to do that. Well, in reality, none of us have probably been tempted by Satan himself. Satan isn't omnipresent like God. He can only be in one place at one time. Now, honestly, none of us are probably so important that we get tempted by Satan himself. 
but there are legions of his demons. We're going to see those later in the book of Mark, repetitively. But what I want us to see is that this moment where Jesus is being tempted is intense. Jesus is squaring off with Satan himself, just like Adam in the garden. And Mark makes a peculiar statement here. And he was with the wild animals. He was with the wild animals. None of the other gospel writers note this. Again, when that's the case, when there's something peculiar to one of the gospel writers or the other, we should be asking the question, why? Why does Mark include this little tidbit of information? Why did he include this? Well, remember, in the garden, before the fall, Adam and Eve, they're at peace with the animals. Adam named them, had dominion over them. All of that changed when sin entered the world. Jesus isn't in a garden, and the animals aren't friendly. He's in the wilderness, surrounded by wild animals. Then look at what Mark says. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Sounds a lot like Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 through 13. Psalm 91, 11 through 13, it says this. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Angels ministering, lions and adders. And what does it say? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. So understand this. That's exactly what Jesus did in this wilderness temptation. He did what Adam should have done in the garden. He trampled the serpent underfoot. He defeated Satan by full obedience. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15. Again, do you see why this is such good news? First, consider again who it is that Mark's writing this gospel to first century Christians in Rome, persecuted by Nero, literally being fed to wild beasts publicly. Jesus has been there. Jesus has overcome. Second, and most importantly, Jesus represented us in this all-out battle with Satan and with temptation. Remember, I said first and foremost, this isn't about us learning how to overcome temptation. It's about representation and Jesus representing us in overcoming this temptation. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. If Christ had failed at any point, 
we'd be hopeless. Our only hope is that we're in the second Adam. He was tempted. He succeeded. So when you're tempted, you can succeed through the power of Christ's spirit. When you fail, you're given grace and you're given mercy because Jesus was and is better. He succeeded in every place that we haven't and don't. When we look at Jesus' victory, we look at ours. Jesus went into the waters and into the wilderness. Jesus identified with us so that we can identify with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you came to this earth. Lord, we know that that you did not need a baptism of repentance, but yet you came and you identified with sinners like us so that we might identify with you. Lord, let us rest in that truth today. Let us cling to it as our only hope that you, as the second Adam, have overcome all sin and death that you trampled on Satan on our behalf, that you lived a perfect life and died a perfect death, and that we get credit for that when we trust in you and turn from our sin. Lord, we thank you for that truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.